join me, if you would, in welcoming tonight's speaker, Dave. Hi, everybody. I'm, I'm Dave, and I'm an alcoholic. Oh, okay. Dave. And uh, I want to thank Brent for asking me to come speak and answer the introduction and so forth. And uh, happy St. Teddy's Day. Hey. A friend of mine told me a few years ago that um, in AA that she said that um, how did she put I'll screw it up um, she said that um, St. Teddy's Day was the reason for Alcoholics Anonymous or something like that <laughs> <laughs> I don't know um, I've known, uh, actually, Brian gave me a call last night to remind me that I was supposed to come and speak tonight, and uh, actually, I knew it. So I've known that I was supposed to speak here for a few days, and uh, for a while, actually, probably about a month ago, he asked me to come. And, and, um, and uh, but I've, I've known, and, and, and uh, I really don't have a clue what we're going to do tonight. You know, I really don't. I, uh, I, I uh, wait a second, God will arrive, and we'll, we'll see what we're I'd like to welcome everybody that's new, and uh, you know, I, I, um, my sobriety date is September 6th of 1992, and uh, I, I mentioned that because I, uh, because I heard this woman speak one time, and, and, uh, and she said that, she said that her sponsor told her that if she didn't have a sobriety date, then she didn't have a sobriety date, and that she needed to get one. And, um, and for some reason, that just kind of gelled with me, you know, when I heard that. And that, uh, um, you know, my sobriety date is the, really the most important day of my life. Um, it's a day that my life actually changed, you know, and uh, things started to happen. Um, I remember one year... My, my actual birthday is in May. It's a couple months down the road, May 15th, if anybody wants to get me anything for my birthday, put that in your calendar. Um, but uh, my mother called me up a few years ago on my, on my birthday, you know, and I was in one of those, uh, you know, I was just full of self the day that she called me with my birthday. And she says, happy birthday. And I, and I just said, that's not that big of a deal, Mom. I said, you know, my sobriety date is a big deal. And... Um, Thank God for our tenth step, and we can clean that stuff up because it was really a big day for my mother, you know. Um, and so I had to kind of go back and say, you know, thanks for calling me. And, and it was a big day, you know. So it was. But my sobriety day in this room, please don't tell my mom, is the biggest thing in my life. <laughs> um, when I first came into Alcoholics Anonymous, um, I. I when, when I first decided to do it AA's way, um, you know, I, I went to those 90 meetings in 90 days I, I heard about, and you know, I, can, I, I went to a lot of meetings, and and, and after I <clears throat> after I started coming around here, and I joined a home group, and and, and after I started doing all that, um, after I'd been around here for about you know 90 days, they, my group would ask me to you know make a chair meeting, or my group would go out and speak at different meetings, and I'd get up at a podium and I'd tell my story, or or, you know, um, I'd get up and I'd chair a meeting. And, and, you know, back in 92, what I was hearing a lot of is dysfunctional families in the halls of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I used to start my talk with, I came from a dysfunctional family. And that's what I thought it took to qualify to be an Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, 
I'm not going to talk about my dysfunctional family tonight because it has absolutely nothing to do with my alcoholism. You know, um, I have two brother. I have one brother and two sisters, and my two sisters and my brother, when they drink, they can control their drinking. But when I drink, I can't stop. You know, I have this uh, phenomenon of craving that takes that takes over once I get into it. And you know, my <clears throat> we 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 have the same mother, the same father, the same biological everything, same opportunities, same everything. Yet when they drink, they can control it. So, you know, this this thing about you know alcoholism skipping generations and all this other stuff. I don't know. You know, that's not my experience. My experience is when I drink, I can't stop. And that's and that's really the bottom line. You know. Um, So when I, when I so I used to start my talk off with I came from this dysfunctional family and uh, and, and again like I said I'm not here to talk about that tonight. Um, when I uh, I, I got to tell you I will tell you a little bit about my family though. Um, I on my father's side of the family let's see I've got an, I've got a cousin. It's on the ten and uh, the FBI's ten most wanted um, list. And uh, my grandfather, when my dad was born, um, back in the 30s, my dad was born. And uh, back back in those days, the doctor used to come to the house and deliver the babies. You know, they didn't go to the hospital and stuff like that. So my grandfather, my father's father, um, he stole the doctor's car and went down to the bar when my dad was being born. And so that's my people on that side of the family. And, they, and my mom's side of the family, um, they, um, um, you know, they're like military, retired military guys and, uh, you know, businessmen and stuff like that. So, you know, um, uh, but, you know, it, you know, it's, 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 it's really, those, those are kind of like who my people are, you know. And so, um, you know, when I, uh, when I when I was five years old, my dad my dad was taken out of out of our house in, in handcuffs, and I and I remember seeing that, and I remember um, you know I, I remember um, you know later later on you know my my and, and he never was to return home again. Um, my father was a uh, was a football coach for Thornton Academy. He was a school teacher, and. Um, you know, and and he would make these uh, these arrangements with me to come, you know, come pick me up and take him with him for the weekend. And but he wouldn't show up. <clears throat> when when my dad was taken out of the house in handcuffs that that night, it was, <clears throat> it was about, you know, it was about it was really late. I I, I I understand it now that it was when the bars were closed. You know, my dad had showed back up home and. Um, Anyway, so growing up in the in the '60s without without your dad was just really tough. You know, single parent home, and uh, I was a kid that used to have to bring two lunch monies to school in case somebody beat me up for the first one. I could still have the, you know. Um, I was afraid of everything. You know, my, my my mom told me, you know, don't fight anybody and all this other stuff, and that was a great excuse for me because I I was just afraid. You know, so so I, I put it all on my mother. You know, the reason why I wasn't a fighter. You know, and. Uh, um, and so, um, so anyways, um, when uh, when I was uh, when I was about twelve years old, my my dad was, you know, I, I did see my dad and, and, and all that, and, and uh, but um, when I was when I was 
about 12 years old, my uh, my dad was diagnosed with, with cancer, and uh, he was given like six months to live, and he, and he kind of lingered on for six years and suffered for a long time. And um, anyways, um, my father and I had a, had a falling out when I was around 14 years old, and, you know, two years into his cancer or whatever, uh, and, he, and he told me he never wanted to talk to me for the rest of his life, and I made a couple of attempts to go see him, you know, for the next couple of years before he died, and, uh, and he, um, he wouldn't talk to me, and uh, finally on his deathbed, he, he'd asked, asked to see me, he, he asked to see me on a Wednesday, and we got a call Tuesday night, he passed away, so we never got to clean that up, you know, and, um, you know, I always went there to see my dad um, with the intention of him having to apologize to me, you know. And um, granted, I needed to apologize to him too, but he owed me an apology. You know, so we never we never cleared that up. And i got to tell you, that kept me drunk for a long time. You know, I tell the story, um, you know, in my drinking days. And every time I got to the part about him, him, him dying on the Tuesday night, you know, that's when I, I break down in tears. You know, I just hadn't resolved any of that. Thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, so anyways, um, so, so there's all sorts of things going on when I was around 14 years old. I, I, just, I discovered alcohol. Um, I mean, I discovered it alcoholically. Uh, my best friend, uh, his sister was 18 years old. Back in, back in Maine, for a short period of time, the legal drinking age was 18. And um, and Greg, my best friend, and I, we went 50-50 on a six-pack of Appeals Real Draft. And, uh, and I drank four of them, and Greg drank two. And, uh, but we split the cost right down the middle. You know, and I always drank that way. I always drank more than my share. You know, and, uh, and you know, there's a, there's a Chinese proverb. It goes from, like, uh, the man takes a drink, the drink takes a drink, and then the drink takes a man. And uh, so, you know, you know, the man started taking a drink when I was like nine or ten, you know, with my cousins and stuff like that. But then the drink started taking a drink when I was with Greg that time. I couldn't really stop drinking. If there was more alcohol there, I would have drank it. I couldn't stop. Um, and then the drink started taking a man because at night in my in my ninth grade um, in school, I, I quit school. So the drink started taking things from me. You know, it took my education. It took you know all my ambitions and aspirations and so forth. Um, when I was, and, 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 you know, so I quit school and, and, um, and, uh, and there was all sorts of things going on in my house. My, my, my dad was dying. My mom at this point had, uh, had started drinking and, uh, and she couldn't, you know, she, she was like a fallen down drunk and, uh, she used to drink in the high school dugouts and it was very embarrassing and, um, you know, and, and my friends would make fun of her, and I'd make fun of her as well, and, you know, and all that stuff, and, you know, and, and then I had a sister that was pregnant, and I, you know, there's all sorts of things that were just going on, um, and, uh, and so when I, um, when I drank, it would take all that stuff away, and so, um, so I quit school, and then, and then at around, um, uh, 19 years old after, well, I gotta tell you, too, before, you know, after I quit school, um, I always had some sort of job somewhere, you know. Um, but um, and I'm a check writer. And, uh, and so I would uh, I'd open up these starter checks, 
and I'd never get it past the you know the starter checks before I'd be bouncing them all over town. <laughs> so so um, so you know the the law was the law was all on me. You know I mean I, I wasn't a hardened criminal yet, but um, but you know the I remember that having a couple of visits from the local police department with some checks in the hand and saying you know. And, and, and so I was getting in a lot of trouble that way. You know, things were just piling up. The problems, my problems kept piling up. And um, so anyways, uh, between, the, uh, between the local law enforcement and my mom, they thought that it would be a good idea that I join the, join the uh, United States Army and defend our country. And <laughs> so, so I, uh, I did that. But I want to back up just a little bit, because this is kind of like a big part of my story. Um, at, a, at around 16 years old, um, you know, after I started drinking, um, I was out partying all <coughs> of the night, and, um, and and you know, and my mom would be passed out, you know, and then we, and then when I, she, you know, she, um, you know, she, she she'd always tell me that I needed to get in at a decent hour or something like that. And so anyway, one particular. Um, morning, I stumbled in at 5 o'clock in the morning. Now, I met a girl about a week before that at Beach Ridge Speedway, um, and me and my best friend, and uh, we were out, you know, chasing girls that night. It was uh, Memorial Day Classics. Summer just started, and uh, they were camping from Rhode Island in the parking lot with their uh, parents, and uh, me and my friend, you know, we were out to the races and looking for girls and stuff, and after the races were over, we went parking in the parking lot, and and about, you know, and, and the reason I tell you this is because, you know, I'm the marrying kind. Hmm. You show me a little bit of attention and we're going to get married. And, uh, um, and, and so Anne-Marie from Rhode Island showed me a little bit of attention. And, and, uh, and then, you know, the next morning, whatever, you know, my friend and I went home that night, you know, we're on the 16th. Or whatever, and uh, but Anne Marie, and you know, we we swore we'd be in touch, and all this other stuff, exchanged telephone numbers and addresses, and all this other stuff. It was a summer love, and uh, about a week later, I was out partying, and uh, Anne Marie obsessing about Anne Marie, and uh, got in at around five o'clock in the morning, rolled into my mother's driveway, and uh, she met me right at the end of the driveway, and she said, "I told you, if you can't get in this house at a decent hour, then you need to get out." So I told her exactly what I thought, and I, uh, I told her, uh, and, and then I just uh, took all of my money, all of my 37 cents, and I hit it <laughs> to run out, and wound up on Anne-Marie's doorstep the following morning. <laughs> and uh, that was May, you know, May, beginning part of June, of, I don't know what year it was, I was 16 years old, so it had to be 76. And... Uh, and I never once called home until Christmas. And, uh, and uh, my grandmother and my, my, my family, um, you know, they didn't know if I was dead or alive. And the story that I told everybody was uh, that my mother kicked me out. And uh, what was me? So people put me up. Anne Marie's uh, sister slash mother um, uh, put me up, and, uh, and, and I lived with them. And, and, uh, and, and my drinking really escalated, and so did my drug use. Um, so Christmas of that year, I, I called home, and uh, and they uh, they allowed me, you know, they they wanted me to come back home. They were they were just thrilled that I was still alive. So I um, so I um, 
So fast forwarding in, in, into the military, I, uh, you know, I joined the military. You know, a few years uh, a few years later, after bouncing checks and doing all this other stuff, and um, and then uh, you know my my uh, my problems were piling up for me in the military too. Every time I get in trouble, alcohol was involved with it somehow. <coughs> so I so I um, you know how we have these bright thoughts, you know, we, you know, you know, I just had this bright idea, you know, one day, I mean, I was coming home, I was in the military, and they give you 30 days a year for vacation, they call it leave, um, so I take these leaves, and uh, I come home, and I, and I hook up with the, uh, the girl that I went to the, uh, the senior prom with, it was actually her senior prom, because I never graduated, but, uh, but, so we'd hook up, and, and, and Debbie had credentials. She was a member of the South Portland Ladies Auxiliary of the VFW, and also the South Portland Eagles. And I'll tell you, you could drink cheap at those places. And I was a military guy, and I was used to not paying a lot of money for booze. And, and so we, uh, so we go, we hit the clubs, is what we called it. And uh, so I do that one of my 30-day leaves. So anyways, I, I had two older sisters. They all had children, and you know, they had the families. They were getting on with their life, and I was in the military, and I. This bright idea that I had. You know, I need to I need to get married and have a family. That's as much thought as went into that. And, uh, um, and so then I uh, made uh, Debbie an offer that she couldn't refuse. Now, picture this, especially ladies in the room. This is, this is a classic. I'm sitting at the South Portland VFW, I mean the Eagles, and there's six-foot, you know, six-foot folding, eight-foot folding tables, right, with a citronella candle right in the middle of each one of the tables, and uh, they're burning, and you know, it's got indoor outdoor carpeting, on the f- and the feet are sticking to it, and the whole place smells like booze. And, and, uh, and there's some cheesy country western band in the background, and and uh, and I asked Debbie to be my bride. I'll tell you, <laughs> what woman would say yes under proper <laughs> So uh, we decided we'd get married, and uh, <laughs> I'm telling you. So, anyways, uh, so I, you know, we, we, we got married, a, you know, a, a few uh, about a year later or whatever, and and then I got out of the military and joined Debbie back home, and, and our marriage lasted, you know, our, we, we we started living together, and, and you know, after we, you know, after I got home out of the out of the military, and that lasted for about three months, and uh, and then uh, we filed for divorce, and and uh, I didn't have a clue, you know, I just didn't have a clue about anything, you know, I didn't have I didn't know how to communicate. I didn't know how to, uh, you know, um, I married my drinking buddy, and, and, you know, I don't know if she's alcoholic or not. I really don't know. I don't know if my dad was. I don't know, you know, I, I hear something said in the halls. If it walks like a duck, it's, like a, it's, a, it's a duck. But, you know, the book is really clear. It says that, you know, we, you know, we never, we never uh, uh, diagnose anybody as alcoholic. It's up to, to their own selves to make that and, and And good thing, because, you know, because it was really, I was really the last to know that I was an alcoholic. And so I, anyways, um, so I married my drinking buddy, and, and we, we divorced uh, about three months after we started living together. And uh, and by this time, I'm working in the car business, and, and, uh, and I'm wearing a suit and tie to work every day. And I had another bright idea. Um, well, you know, after, after, after I got divorced, um, I felt like a complete failure, so I started isolating. And... Uh, and and I remember anybody 
if, if anybody's familiar with where Jolly John's is, you know, in Saco, across the street there's a tattoo parlor. Next time you're in the neighborhood, just kind of look at that tattoo parlor. Down where that tattoo parlor is used to be a fish market. And the fish market sold uh, booze. And above that, it's a cape. It's a small cape cod house. And, um, and above that fish market is two rooms, plus a bathroom in between both of them. And I rented that. That was my apartment. And, uh, and I worked at one of the car dealerships right across the street. Um, and I had this big dartboard in my living room. And, uh, and every Wednesday night, we'd, have, we'd play darts. And uh, anyways, the, 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 the fish market had the coldest beer in town. And, and I had credit with the fish market. And uh, so, uh, so I'd charge up my paycheck and pay them every week and all this other stuff. Um, so uh, here I am isolating in that small apartment, and one of, my, one of my friends comes over and he says, Come on, Dave, let's go, let's go out. He says, You know, you've been cooped up here for a while, you know. And, you know, I just didn't want to do anything. I, I felt like a failure. My marriage had failed, and all of a sudden I was drinking, and I was perfectly content playing darts and just getting wasted. And he says, come on, Dave. He says, it's ladies' night down to Soho's. Let's go. <laughs> so, I, uh, so I went down to Soho's that night. I met the girl of my dreams. <laughs> Sue. <laughs> or our hostage number two. <laughs> so I met Sue, and, uh, and a couple months later, we were engaged to be married. And... and uh, <laughs> Sue didn't drink as much as Debbie did. Sue, uh, Sue actually told me that I was an alcoholic. She told my sister I was an alcoholic, and, and uh, you know, and, and she told my family and, uh, that, that I was an alcoholic, and and they, you know, they confront me, and I say, you know, I'm not. No, I, 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 yeah, I drink a lot, but I can stop anytime I want. I just don't want to stop. You know, I, I just like to party. What's wrong with that? So Sue gave me, uh, gave me an ultimatum. She said, it's either me or the parties. And I said, see you later. It was that cut and dry. The book says the alcoholic's like a tornado that rips through the lives of others. And that's exactly what I did. You know, I look back on that today. Sue was a really good girl. And who knows, if I wasn't crippled with this alcoholism, where my life would be today. But we do what we do to get to where we go. And, um, and uh, so anyways... Um, so, but looking back on that, just how important alcohol was over another human being, you know, that's, that's pathetic. The book also talks about pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization. That's totally pitiful, you know. And um, so, anyway, so, so I, um, so, so my life has kind of came in on me. Um, you know, I, my sister just bought a house and. Uh, and um, they had a basement in there, and, and I had another great idea. You know, they could probably use some help financially, so I'll move out of my, my uh, fish market apartment, and, uh, and I'll just pay them 50 bucks a week to live there, and, you know, in, in their basement. And uh, it sounded like a good, a good idea to everybody, so I, so I, lived, uh, I moved into their basement. And, um, and I was making, back then I was making about $50,000 a year. And that was back in 92. That wasn't bad money back then. It's not bad money today. Anything's better than what's today in these days. But, but you know, I, I was making that, and, and my agreed rent was $50 a week. 
And what that would cover is all my food, my laundry, and, you know, my life, and all that. And, uh, so, okay. So I, uh, so I'm living in the basement, and, um, and by this time I got another funny why I had, in my license had been suspended. I was dri- I was in the car business, I was driving this brand new $20,000 car with, with no driver's license. Um, I was one of the managers where I worked, and, uh, I remember the owner of the car dealership came in on his day off, just out of the blue. And I was complaining about something because I was always complaining about something. So he came into my office and he says, uh, he saw, and I start complaining about somebody. He says, listen, I don't have any problem with that. And he says, but I do have a problem with you and your drinking. If you don't do something about it, you're going to lose your job. And it was that, it was like he hit me like a Joe Bornstein, boom, you know? <laughs> so I referred to the only thing I knew, and I just started crying. And uh, that always worked in the past, especially when I tell the story about my dad dying. So I, uh, so I, I, um, you know, it was clear that I was pretty shook up, so Peter gave me the rest of the day off. So I took my car. He didn't know I was driving without a license. Took my car over to the fish market, charged me up a 12-pack of beer, and uh, went down to the bar where my brother was, and and um, then him and I took a ride down to Portland Headlight. And uh, he brought his he brought his uh, drugs, and I brought my uh, my booze, and and, uh, and then he uh, then for some reason I said he asked me a question. He asked me a question. He says, Dave. He says. How long has it been since you haven't drank? And I, it was like a little light that came on. I said, geez, I don't know, Andy, you know, uh, I think I might be an alcoholic. And it was like this major revelation. And, uh, and so, so with that, I felt like I needed to tell the world. And, uh, so I called my boss and, and he says, well, I says, look, look, uh, look, Bob, I says, I'm, I says, I, I think I'm an alcoholic, and I'm, and I'm even willing to try AAA. He says, okay, Dave. He says, well, today's the first day of the rest of your life, he says. He says, come on in tomorrow morning, and we'll talk with you. I'm really proud of you, he says. So I get there, and then they decided that they're going to send me to the Mercy Hospital Rehab. Now, one of the guys that worked for me in the car dealership had just gotten out of the rehab. And... Uh, and he says, uh, and he says, don't worry about it. He says, when you get back, your job will be your, your job safe. But you're gonna, you know, let's strike while the kettle's hot. You'll, you know, and you'll go there. Well, I didn't want to go to any rehab. I mean, I wasn't as bad as Keith was. And uh, I mean, I wore a suit and tie to work every day. So, so, uh, so I go, I, I go to the rehab, and I and I wear the suit and tie that I passed out the night before. But you know, I kind of, you know, flatten it out a little bit and got it all straightened out and. Walked into the uh, Mercy Hospital rehab and they asked me a bunch of questions and uh, they asked me if uh, and it was the first time ever I was honest about. It. I mean, I had interventions along the way, but you know, but this time you know I answered them as honestly I guess as I could. And they asked me if I sweat while I slept. They asked me if I ever blacked out. They asked if I was you know if I had thoughts of suicide or homicide or you know any of that. And uh, they asked me all these questions, you know and. And I was honest with them. And, uh, and then they said to me, well, they got some good news and some bad news. They gave me the bad news first. The bad news is I've got a disease, they said. It's called alcoholism. 
But the good news is, is that you can recover from it, they said. All you're going to have to do is, is uh, check in here for 28 days. This is when they did 28-day programs. Um, 28 days, and and, um, and, uh, and when you're... Um, in, and we're going to introduce, we're going to put you into some group therapy and some therapy, and um, and then we're going to introduce you to the people of AA. And when you get out of here, all you're going to do is uh, follow up with your aftercare and follow the lead of people in Alcoholics Anonymous, and you can recover from this disease. So I said, uh, and, and then and then they said, and another thing, they said you're going to need a change of clothes because simply ties not the proper attire around here. So they were kind of on to me right right away. So I, uh, so I stayed for the 28 days. And, you know, when I went into the rehab, they gave, they gave everybody got a soft-covered big book and, uh, that was donated to the rehab by Alcoholics Anonymous. So some group in AA donated some big books. And so they gave me this big book. And every one of my, and I like to call it my class, every one of my class, because I never graduated anything, you know. So every one of my class had, the, had one of these big books, and, you know, and everyone signed it, you know, and, you know, like a yearbook, you know. I felt like a giddy schoolgirl, for God's sake. You know? and, um, but anyway, you know, I like to say that I was smarter than the average bear because I could, I could talk this talk. I, I, was, I was quick, you know. And, uh, and, and there had been, been some guys at that rehab, some women too, um, that had uh, been there a few times, and, and a couple of them put in my book. If there's anybody going to get it, it's going to be you, Dave. You know, see you in the halls. You know, and, and, uh, <laughs> I thought that the Dr. Evans' school in 1992 was voting me most likely to succeed. So, uh, so I, when I when I was in that when I was in the rehab, they gave me a piece of paper and it was called an offensive recovery plan. An offensive recovery plan. So I had to make this up. I had to put the meetings down that I was going to go to, and I had to put the name down of my sponsor, a temporary sponsor. And, you know, I was always like the easiest, softer kind of guy. So I got Keith, the guy that worked for me at the car dealership, to be my temporary sponsor. Because I, I heard people talking about their sponsors at these meetings they were taking me to. And some guys would say that their sponsor told them to do this, and they told them to do that, and they told Nobody was going to tell me to do anything. And if Keith did, I'd fire him at work. <laughs> Lack of power was not my dilemma. <laughs> so, uh, so Keith's name went down on the list, and um, then I had all these meetings. And, and you know what? I, and, and in my head, I, I thought, well, geez, you know, I can do these. But, you know, when I got out of that rehab, I had a job. I mean, my job was waiting for me, and, and it was, I, I had a pretty important job. You've got to know that. And, uh, you know, I was getting dispensable. And, uh, you know, and so, so anyways, I, I go and uh, I, I go to a few meetings. But, you know, I didn't have a driver's license either, you know. So, so you know, I go to a few meetings and all of a sudden I, uh, um, I just stop going. And, and um, me and my, uh, me, me and the other four managers were, were heading out to a, to a, um, um, to a business trip in Denver, Colorado, about a few months after I got out of rehab. And while I was out, you know, we were all having lunch together. We were talking about the trip. You know, John, John was my best friend and one of my co-workers, and he, him and I were going on Team 1, and, 
Peter and Joe were going on team two, and we were going to learn about a new computer system, software system, and all this other stuff in the car dealership. And, and so we're all four having lunch, and, and uh, Joe, uh, John, my best friend, says to Peter and Joe, he says, you guys are going to have a blast when you get out to Denver. I mean, we were talking about the nightlife and everything else, like, what am I going to do? And, I mean, we're going to Colorado. We're going to have a good time. And, and uh, But John says to Peter and Joe, he says, but he says, you know, you guys are... You guys are going to have a good time, but I'm going with the ex-drunk over here. He says, I can see it now. He says, we're going to be drinking coffee at the bar. He says, you'll probably be trying to pay for those coffees uh, with his poker chips that he's getting. (laughs) Well, I don't know about you, but I drank because I needed to fit in. Because I was afraid of everything. And here I was, my very best friend in the world wasn't accepting me because I was sober. So I get out to uh, Denver, Colorado, and uh, John says, Dave, you're all the way out here, out here in Denver. No one's not going to be drunk. All you got to do, Dave, is control your drinking, he says. Put sodas between your drinks, he says. <laughs> so I like to say that every man has a belief, and I believe my friend John was right. And uh, I'll take a long neck Budweiser and... Uh, and uh, I, I took a sip, then another one, and then that one was gone. And uh, and then I uh, I was thirsty, man. And, uh, and then I uh, then I ordered a diet Pepsi because I wanted to keep my figure. And, uh, and then I ordered another long neck Budweiser, and then uh, to hell with the diet Pepsi. And that was on September fifth, nineteen ninety two. And I don't remember much of that night. I you know I usually when I when I drink I black out. You know, I, I usually black out. This particular night, I, I, I have some periods of gray, which I kind of wished I would have blacked out, because that night I did end up in the uh, hotel lounge singing a little karaoke. <laughs> and, uh, and it was a bad rendition of Mac the Knife, and I, <laughs> I really do wish I, I blacked out for that. I'm sure that the rest of the bar does, too. Um, but I, uh, but you know, that's all—it's all funny and stuff like that. It is, you know, some of the stuff we do is is quite hilarious, really. Some of it's really pretty sad and pathetic. But you know, like Bill even said, if you know, you know, I read somewhere, you know, God teaches, you know, teaches, uh, uh, let us laugh, but never let us forget that we once cried, you know. And so, um, the real main reason why I'm here is what happened on September 6th of 1992. September 6th of 1992, I came to. See, I passed out the night before. I, I never went to sleep when I drank. I always passed out. So I passed out in my clothes in the Denver Hyatt, wet the bed, and uh, came to the next morning. And, uh, and I was laying in my bed. You know, nobody else was in my room. I was still fully clothed and wet. Um... And my life kind of flashed before my eyes. You know, like the ghost of Christmas, Christmas past, present, and future, you know. But my life kind of flashed before my eyes. And it was like, you know, this thought came to me. You tried to control your drinking last night, and you couldn't stop. People that are your age have homes, cars, families, educations. You have none of that. You're such a loser. You know? I, I, I guess at that point, I got the... the you know, as best as I could, I got the second part of the first step. Because I, I measured manageability by possessions and, you know, accomplishments and stuff. 
But it takes what it takes. Today I measure it differently. But, but I was. I mean, my life was a mess. I was 32 years old. I was living in my sister's basement. Half the time I wouldn't pay her the rent. You know, um, the only money that I had to my name was the money that they sent me to Denver with so I could eat on. Um, you know, and the next thought that came to my came to my mind is you tried to control your drinking last night and you couldn't stop. The part in the book here, in, in the chapter more about alcoholism, it says, we learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost self that we're about alcoholism. It says, we learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost self that we're alcoholics. The next sentence right after that, it says, this is the foot alcoholism. It says, we learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost self that we're alcoholics. The next sentence right after that, it says, this is the first step of recovery. So I got to tell you, even though Sue had told my family and my sister confronted me, everybody had confronted me, even the people in rehab, told me I was an alcoholic, even when they said, you've got alcoholism. You know, it wasn't until I fully conceded to my innermost self that I was an alcoholic. You know, that's when my first step of recovery started to happen. And you know something that was really amazing? is I was the very last to know. And so here I am. You know, I'm, I'm laying in my bed. I'm feeling totally stripped, you know. What am I going to do from here? You know, I made a defeat, really. Well, the book says we have but two alternatives. Is we can either blot it out to the bitter end to the best of our ability, or the other is to accept spiritual help. So what happened for me is I made my way to the bathroom. And when I drank, I puke. I'm a puker. I'm a puker, 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 you know. And uh, here I am puking at the, at the, in, the, in the toilet. You know, and every time I get in a scrape with the law, you know, especially bouncing those checks and driving offenses and all this other stuff, I'd always say, God, get me out of this one and I'll never do it again. But here I am puking my guts out, and that's not the prayer I said that morning. I said, God, please help me. I can't do this anymore. And it was at that point, you know, from that day up until now, I have not had the desire, the compulsion, or anything to drink. I was just talking to Ben before the meeting, and there's a couple other people that know me really well in here. I've had a, been going through a really rough winter this winter. Very tough. But I'll tell you one thing. The insanity of alcohol has not returned. I do not have a thought of a drink. You know, is God great or what? Yeah. Something about knocking the door shell open. You know, I don't know. I, I, I'm not a preaching kind of guy. You know, I, I've heard that in a song somewhere. You know, knocking the door shell open, seek and you shall find. And so I knocked, and, and, and I haven't had the desire or the compulsion to drink. The next thing that happened is I made my way on the airplane that morning and flew back to Maine. And I made a decision on that airplane. And, and it's kind of it's kind of apropos, I guess, kind of really neat. I mean, it was kind of a kind of a decision. I mean, it's kind of overcast coming out of Denver, but as we got above the clouds, the sun was beating inside the cabin of the plane, and, and I made this uh, this decision that I'd do what AA's were. So when I touched down in Portland, I, I, I wound up in my basement suite at my sister's house, and um, I, got, I had some numbers from Alcoholics Anonymous. I started calling people. I got a sponsor. I jumped right into the middle of AA. 
I, I, you know, I, I joined a group. I joined three groups. I became this and that and everything else in AA. And, you know, I, you, you guys just love me, you know. You were my family. I, I've been looking for you for a long time. You know, you welcomed me. And uh, I used to hear things at these meetings. I was so, it was just so nice to hear. Keep coming until you want to come. Is what I hear stuff like that. And for the first two years of sobriety, that stuff really worked. And, uh, you know, um, you know, I was a GSR, I was a treasurer of a couple of years, and my ego would arrive 20 minutes before I get here. It's like having too much cologne on, you know? So, um, but you love me nonetheless. You know, you, I mean, I'm sure you were talking about me behind my back, because we're not perfect. We do that in here, you know? And, uh, but anyways, you love me nonetheless, and, and, and that's exactly, that's exactly what we do here, you know? At two years sober, though, the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, don't drink, go to meetings, and ask for help, nearly killed me. Because the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, as powerful as it is, isn't enough to keep me sober or to keep me sane. We, in, in a lot of the meetings that we go to, you know, we hear how it works. And at the very end, somebody told me, don't forget your ABCs. A, that we're alcoholic and we cannot manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power, no human power can relieve our alcoholism. C, that God could and would if he were sought. So that doesn't say I even have to find God. I just have to seek God, and my alcoholism is going to be released, relieved. How do we seek God? You know, that's something I learned. I seek God through work and self-sacrifice for others, through being of service to other people. It's amazing. So here I am, uh, two years sober. The thought of the drink has, 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 has left me. But, you know, I'm still the same... I, I, some of the things we say around here. You sober up a horse thief, what do you got? Well, you got a sober horse thief. <laughs> so here I am, right? I'm still a check writer. Sober check writer, what do you got? Sober check writer. So my, my financial life was still very unmanageable. I was nuts. And I heard, that's another thing we say, you know, I heard an acronym in here. Nuts. Not using the steps. <laughs> the problem was, is that, you know, I, I, I'd hang out with people that really didn't do the steps. You know, we did a lot of talking about it, but we didn't really do it. <laughs> um, so, so at two years sober, here I am, Mr. A.A., I'm bouncing checks all over town. I'm stealing from my group's treasuries. Now I'm a treasurer of two groups. And I'm looking for love in all the wrong places. Stories disclosed in a general way. You guys can read between the lines on that one. Yeah. And uh, the thought of a drink wasn't wasn't even there, but suicide was looking really good. I was looking at myself in the mirror, and I saw the biggest phony in AA looking right back at me. And so my solution was a gun to my head. So I went to go see my sponsor. I always had sponsors that were into therapy and all the psycho stuff, psycho, you know, psychological stuff. And, uh, and I went to go talk to him. He said, I don't know what to tell you, Dave. He said, but here's the number of my therapist. 
So he sends me to go see his therapist, and this guy's an AA himself, and we start talking about things, and I'm, I'm being honest with this guy, and, you know, I'm pretty shooken up. I couldn't even work. I mean, I was, I was just, I was right in the middle of my alcoholism. And uh, he says, listen, he says, how many, how many meetings are you going to? Now, I was going to two. I was going to at least one, sometimes two, sometimes three meetings a day. I love AA. I'm doing all that stuff, and when I wasn't in here, I was still bouncing checks and looking for love in all the wrong places and stealing from my group's treasury. I don't know where I had time for all that stuff, but because I was here a lot. And uh, but anyways, um, you know, he uh, he says, "How many meetings are you going to?" I said, "Well, you know, I, you know, being done, you know, and my, you know, all proud and everything." I said, "You know, I'm going to one, sometimes two, sometimes three. He says, "Well, he said you need to get a life." <laughs> He says, he says, you need to back off of those AA meetings. And you know what else you need to do, Dave? He says, you need to nurture that inner child. Well, I'll tell you, the last thing my inner child needed was nurturing. It needed an ass whooping. That's what it needed. And, uh, you know, he says, you need to do things that are good for you. Well, just I've been stealing and doing all that other stuff. And, you know, I was nurturing. You know, I, I was just a spoiled brat is all I really was, you know. And, you know, and, and that was all fear-based and all the... Well, after I got to the bottom of it, I know where that, what that was all about. But that doesn't, you know... But even knowing and doing are two different things, too. So, you know... Um, so, anyways, I... Uh, so, he says, back off those meetings. He says, I need to see you twice a week. And he says, um, and can I have your insurance card? And so... Um, <laughs> so, I went to go see him twice a week, but I continued to go to meetings. And, and, and finally, I heard something that saved my life. I heard this woman speak at the main area around it. Uh, it's at Sugarloaf every year. Um, and there was like a thousand people there. And this woman by the name of Mary Thayer. And she spoke about the big book and she spoke about God. And she talked about the steps and she talked about things I really wasn't hearing in the halls. Not really. You know, not the way that she was. She was. She laid the kit of spiritual tools at my feet in my inspection. It's really what she did. And she saved my life. It wasn't really her, it was God working through her, and I know that today. But she was the instrument. And she had something that I wanted. And she sponsored me for a short period of time, and then she introduced me to this man that I, I am forever grateful for. His name's Don Pritz, he, and he died a few years ago. And, he, and, he, and um, this man showed me precisely how to recover from alcoholism. He took me through the 12 steps in the, uh, from the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. He showed me how to write inventory. He, 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 he showed me precisely how to recover. And so, anyways, I, um, um, I started to write inventory. And uh, I, I wrote my inventory. And, I, and, I, and, and he was from Colorado. And I flew back out to, once it was done, I flew back out and read my fifth step to him. And uh, we went right through. And, and I started to talk about things. Like, I went into, into my resentment inventory. Um, I, I want to share. I want to share a couple of things real quick out of my inventory. Like resentment, you know, I had this major resentment towards my dad. He was a football coach. He never taught me how to play football. You know, and that affected every area of my life. I mean, the women would think I was a wuss. The men would think I was a wuss. You know, I was I was screwed, man. You know, because my father never taught me how to play football. And so, the. The part in the book, what I love about the, the, the inventory process is, 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 there's so much I love about it anyways, but one thing in particular, if you're honest, 
you get to the bottom and the truth of things. Where was I dishonest? Well, the truth was, is my dad bought me a pigskin football. He used to, you know, he used to try to teach me how to pay, play pass, but I didn't like the game. I had no interest in it. So what I ended up doing is I, is I told this big lie because I was afraid what you'd think of me. That's what I did. So here I was, you know, I'd hang out. I, I went to school in Scarborough. By this time, my father was teaching in Westbrook. You know, when he died, they named an auditorium after him. You know, and, 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 and so, you know, I go to school in Scarborough, and the kids in Westbrook, they love my father. They, he was, they, they, they admired him. But I was always quick to say, yeah, he never did anything for me. <laughs> you know? And so I would defame my father's character. And I'd do that. And, uh, you know, and, and, um, and so when I was honest about it, you know, the truth, that's the truth. You know, I, I still don't like, I mean, I, I love hanging out with you guys on Super Bowl and all that other stuff. But I don't watch it. I don't care what you think either. You know? You know, I, I mean, that's a, that's a freedom that we have here. You know, um, I'm not living my life for you, you know? Next thing, next thing that happened, you know, that I listed my, all my fears, and I got to the bottom of those, and, and, and um, now, one of the big major things in my inventory was my sex inventory, and, and I'll talk to you a little bit about that. It's going to be very exciting. <laughs> Hold on to your seats. <laughs> so, so Don taught me on the sex inventory that I needed to put each relation through a test. Was it selfish or not? So Anne-Marie made the list. Anne-Marie was that girl from Rhode Island. And Don shared with me some things out of his inventory, too, where I could identify with it. You know, um, and, and, and it really helped me when I wrote my inventory. Anne-Marie made the list. Where was I selfish, dishonest, associated? You know, when, when, I, when I asked all those questions... The next question I had to ask is, whom had we heard? Well, it was really clear when I got because I had to put I put I put Julie down. Julie was my was my like my third grade uh, sweetheart. You know, she made the list. You know, you know, and all this basically we just see in patterns. You know, it was it was relations. You know, and, but but Anne Marie was a big one because that uncovered a lot of truth. So whom had we heard? Well, it was clear that I heard you know the people in Rhode Island that I stole from and. You know the drunk that I rolled in an alley over there, and you know, and her mother slash sister that I, that I, uh, you know, stole for you know, and all that other stuff. I mean, it was really, and I'm not minimizing that, but there was more. To, who else did I hurt? Well, I hurt my whole family. My whole family didn't know if I was dead or alive, and my mom was drinking back then. She had no, you know, she had no tools to deal with that. Now I don't have any kids. I'd love to have some kids. I really would. I'd love to have a family. But I'll tell you one thing. I've lost a dog before. And with losing that dog, that nearly killed me. Can you just imagine what my mom felt? You know? When I started seeing this truth about it, you know, when I started reading that part of my inventory to Don, I was just sobbing, you know? I was so remorseful. And Don stopped me, you know, after I was done with that. He says, and he says when you get to your ninth step, you're going to have to make amends for this. He says, and when you make the amends, it's not going to be amends means to fix. It doesn't mean to just get everybody together in your family in one big group hug and everything's going to be okay. This is, you're going to meet them individually. And you'll talk to them. You know, and, and he showed me again precisely how to make amends. 
So, anyways, I have these amends now that I had, you know, when, and, and I went through steps six and seven, and I, and, and I love the seventh step prayer. Will you ask God to take all of you, good and bad? So that means anything good about me is no longer mine either. That's God's. Bad belongs to God too, you know? And, and, and grant me strength as I go up here to do your bidding. I love that because now I need the strength to go out and make these amends. So I make my list and I got it from my inventory and then all of a sudden I start making amends and, and, and I made appointments with every, I, I mean, the people I stole from, I made most of my amends at this point. But, um, but my family were, was really important. So I go out and I, and I, and I meet with my, uh, I make appointments and I meet with my brother first, my younger brother more successful financially than I am. And uh, so I go, and, and I meet with, with him in his workshop, which is valued like three times the cost of my house. <laughs> which I think is ironic, because I was always jealous of him, and here I am making amends in this workshop, and I'm living in a trailer, you know? And, uh, but, but, but I was making the amends. And, um, and, and, I, and I started to talk about Rhode Island, and we started, my brother and I both started to cry. And he says, Dave, he says, uh, I, you know, and, and, and I've learned that when I go to make amends, I always ask this question: Have I left anything out? And uh, and then they'll tell you. And uh, and then then I then I said to him um, um, at the at the very end, I always ask, "What do I need to do to make this right?" And then all I got to do is just shut up and listen. And every time I'll be told. So I said to my brother, I said, what can I do, Andy, to, to balance the books here? How can I make this right? And he says to me, he says, and I shut up, and he says, uh, Dave, he says, uh, just keep doing what you're doing. He says, stop by every now and then when you get a chance. I'd love to see you. You know, uh, like I was telling my friend Ben earlier, and a couple other people that know me, this, 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 this Christmas, uh, this uh, winter has been really tough. But I've made time to go see my brother. Because that's what I need to do to make it right. One of the things I said to my brother, I said, did I leave anything out? He says, he says, well, he says, remember when you came home that Christmas morning? I said, yeah. He says, and when I left the room, I said, yeah. He says, he says, well, I left the room because I was so excited to see you that I wet my pants. And see, and that's what we do. I mean, I, I meant the world to this kid. And I just squashed that, you know. So when I asked him what I could do to make it right, it's a small price that I could pay. Even in the midst of my crap, you know, <coughs> I make the appointment with my mom, and I and, and, and I meet with my mother, and, and and I start crying. I can't even get the words out, and she says, "Well, let's let's just stop right here. This is too painful. Let's not talk about this." And I've learned that when I make when I go to make amends, I don't need to do that at the sake of somebody else, hurt somebody else. It was clear that it was hurting my mom. So at this point, I don't know what to do. So I turn to God. Step eleven. When agitated or doubtful, we ask God for direction. I ask God, I said, what do you want me to do? The answer comes, you know, just be quiet and listen, and then I got a gift. My mother had been sober for like 20 years by the time I go to make this amends. One AA meeting, and it's a trick for her. So, but I was quick to label her as a dry drunk and all this other stuff. And, <laughs> but anyway, so she says, you know, she says, and then I got this gift. She says, you know, David, she says, I've done a lot of things wrong in my life, but you forgive me, don't you? And I realized at that point that, um, I realized the next morning in meditation, that my mom went to one AA meeting. She probably saw the window shades on the wall, maybe. She hadn't had the opportunity 
to do what I was doing to go make these amends. The rest of my family is still pissed off at her to, the, to this day. But that day, my mom and I's slate was clean. You know, God used me, just like it says in the Ninth Stone, that our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be a maximum service to God. So God used me to be of service so my mom could get free. Amazing. And so I, so I asked her at the end, I said, Mom, what can I do to make things right? And she says, you know, the only thing I've ever wanted for you to be is happy. Again, been going through a bunch of crap lately. I call my mother once a week. Sometimes I go see her. When I do, I'm happy. Even if I'm not. Because that's the least I can do. Um, there's a couple of other amends in my family who are almost out of time. But you get the gist of it. You know, that, um, that this is no longer... When I took that third step, Don says to me, your life is under new management now. You're under new management. This is no longer your life. This is God's life to do with you as he wishes. This is not like, God's not working for me in my life anymore today. This is nothing about that. This is about me doing God's work, not the other way around. I've had a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. I've had warm, fuzzy feeling spiritual awakenings as not as a result of the steps, but I've had the spiritual awakening that they talk about in the book as the result of the steps. My sponsors and, and the people that I've worked with have, so we have the same, you know, it, we, we have that common bond. Not just, you know, um, so it's so it's interesting if you, you know, if, if, um, if you're new in here and you're just wondering where, you know, is there a way out? There is a way out, you know. It's not always easy. It's not always a bed of roses. I'm a perfect example of that. But there is a way out. And, um, and I want to thank you once again for asking me to speak.